Hello, everyone. Pastor Will, one of the servants here at New Line Press. Uh, thanks for joining us for worship. If you have your Bibles, want to get right into it. We're continuing along in a series called Encounters with Jesus, and today we look at an encounter with this rather esoteric sort of unique personality in the name of Zacchaeus. And so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 19, verses, verses 1 to 10. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This is God's word for us today. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this is God's word. You could go ahead and take your seats. Well, as I've mentioned, we have a, an interesting encounter here with a fascinating character. And of course, it's a historical story. So Zacchaeus is less of a character and more just a human being. But it's a fascinating personality with a radical change in his attitude towards money and possessions. What's interesting to note is always to look at where are the different encounters that you see in the Gospels, because their placement in the storyline could give a lot of insight. And so in Luke's account of the Gospel, the last miracle or the last encounter that Jesus has before he dies on the cross is actually this encounter with Zacchaeus. And that's important because it tells us this might be the pinnacle, this might be the height of what Jesus' mission was according to the gospel writer of Luke. Because if you were here with us the past couple of weeks, when we looked at the gospel of Mark, Mark records the last story for, before Jesus dies on the cross, and he records the last miracle in the healing of blind Bartimaeus. So it's interesting. Mark says the last miracle is this blind guy. Luke says the last encounter is this rich tax collector in Zacchaeus. Mark, it was someone poor, and marginalized from community society. But Luke, it's someone rich, but he's also marginalized from community and society. And that sounds strange to us because in our culture, we often think those people who are wealthy and rich are on the inside. Our culture will tell us the more profitable, the more purchasing power, the tax bracket that you're in, the amount of wealth that you've accumulated for yourself, those people tend to be connected and wealthy and people gravitate towards them. But in the the character, the personality of Zacchaeus, what we'll notice is that he is absolutely rich, but he's absolutely marginalized. He's not popular. He's actually, he's ostracized. So it's an interesting combination of qualities that we see in this person, Zacchaeus. But here's a lesson for us today in this radical encounter. When Zacchaeus meets Jesus, he's radically transformed in his character, which led him to be radically different in his use of money and power. Let me say it this way. 
Luke is telling us that the very fact that Zacchaeus was radically different in the way he viewed money and power, Luke is saying that's an undeniable evidence and fact that he was radically changed and transformed in his heart. Radical internal transformation leads to radical differences in the way you view money and wealth and your possessions and accumulating all this wealth and materials for yourself. In fact, this one scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, has said this, Perhaps nothing so quickly tells us a person's relation with God as a person's relationship with money and possessions. In no small measure, discipleship includes economics. Following Jesus will cause fundamental lifestyle changes. And so here's a challenge for you and me. Has that change and radical impact by meeting the riches of Jesus Christ changed the way you view your possessions and your money and your jobs and your power and your wealth? Because if there's one thing that God has blessed generally, Orange County and New Life Press, and I'm not saying this is true of every member, but if there's one thing that God has blessed us that we are to be good stewards of, is going to be the amount of economic power, wealth, and accumulation that our church and members have acquired. And so this is hard-hitting. We tend to not talk about money in the church because it's too sensitive. But if Dale Bruner is right, then nothing perhaps is a greater indication of your relationship with God than your relationship with money, with power, with economics, with financial stability. So let's look at this encounter. We're just going to walk through this encounter and learn a little bit, a little bit about radical transformation and radical generosity. First, we're going to look at very briefly, who is this man of Zacchaeus? What was he about? What are, what are his credentials, his resume? Secondly, we'll look at how did he become saved? Now, what were the circumstances? What was that dialogue like? How did Zacchaeus become a Christian? And then thirdly, what difference did it make? Now, did it change the way that he lived? One way to ask the question on the third point is, how do we know that Zacchaeus was really saved? So three simple categories or points. One, who is this man? Secondly, how did he get saved? Thirdly, how do we know he got saved? How do we know that he was genuinely a believer? And so let's look at these sort of broad guiding principles about money and wealth. So first, who is Zacchaeus? Well, read with me verse 2. It shows us at least three qualities about Zacchaeus. It says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So right away, we know that Luke wants you to know this guy in his occupation and his wealth. You know, if we're honest, sometimes that's how we engage community ourselves, don't we? You know, you exchange business cards. What do you do for a living? And you sort of size each other up. I wonder how much he makes. I wonder what his bank account is like. We don't say it outwardly, but in our hearts, we may be thinking about that just a little bit. So we sort of introduce ourselves in the way that Luke introduces Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is actually the Greek translation of his Jewish name, Zacchaeus. And ironically, the tax collector, which was viewed in negative light, Zacchaeus, that name means pure, means righteous. It means, Zacchaeus means just, which is a play on words. So we know three things about him. First, he's a tax collector. But here's what we have to understand. It is much deeper than simply saying he works for the IRS. I mean, even if you work for the IRS, you don't really want to reveal that to other people, perhaps, because we still don't like paying taxes, but this is much worse. It's not the IRS. Actually, what Zacchaeus was is that he was viewed as a traitor. He was corrupt. Because anybody who was a chief tax collector means that you're in power because you have under, other tax collectors under you. But the reason that he was viewed as a traitor was because he was 
employed by the Roman government. And one of the things the Roman government did, which was a very savvy political move, is that when they overtook a weaker country like Judea, they would impose heavy taxes because you want to keep the weaker country financially weak. You can impose your power and culture. So the taxes that they took from the average person in traveling was enormous. They took a lot of money. And Zacchaeus, who is supposed to be on the good side, being a fellow Jew, is employed by the Roman government, taking from his own people an extraordinary amount of money. So he's in collusion with a government that was repressive. But more so, all the historians say that all you have to do as a tax collector is give the government the minimum, but you could charge more. So even if they take 70%, they could charge 80%, and then you pocket the difference. You know, you take that spread, you take the haircut, you, you take 10%. And that's why you could be really corrupt, because depending on the person, you could take extra money. And that's why Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector following gap laws or the IRS laws. He was somebody in collusion with an oppressive government, and he was corrupt himself. He defrauded people. He would take above and beyond what was required by law. That's Zacchaeus. He wasn't just not generous, he was corrupt. And further, when you look at verse 2, he wasn't just the chief tax collector, and I mentioned this, the qualities of his characteristics makes him a very weird character. He sort of doesn't fit any model or mold. You know, so for example, on one sense, he was both an outsider and an insider because he breaks all expectations of how a Christian or a government worker should be. So, for example, I mentioned this, the fact that he was rich, you would automatically think he tends to be on the in-crowd. Because when you read the Gospels, rich people, they seem to be the connected ones, the people connected to power. So he was rich, so you think that he would be automatically an insider. But actually, the crowds say that he's actually a sinner. And usually when they say sinner, that's usually relegated to people who were low social status, those who were prostitutes, those who had no home, no connections, maybe they're mixed breeds, but he was a pure Jew. But the reason that he was a sinner was because he was a tax collector in inclusion with the oppressive government. So he's rich, which normally we think, well, he's connected on the in-crowd, but then crowds say he's a sinner, which you normally associate with people who are not rich. So it's a weird combination of characteristics. He's economically in the upper class, but he's socially on the lower class. He has high financial capital, but he has low social capital. He has a high tax bracket, but he's on the low social caste. And I think that Luke brings his character as the last encounter before Jesus dies to say that the gospel speaks to a wide variety of people that everyone needs to be saved. It tells us very plainly, you're never rich and powerful and successful enough that you don't need Jesus. But at the same time, you're never bad enough that it's impossible to be outside the reach of Jesus. Zacchaeus was rich, but he was a social outcast. He had power, but he abused it, and therefore he was somebody who had no friends. Now imagine, or maybe guessing, some of us may be like Zacchaeus in the sense, maybe devoted your entire life to being rich and to being successful, but you find at the pinnacle of your career, I don't have any friends. I don't know who my real friends are. Now, that's the book of Proverbs. Once you're wealthy, all these people come to you. You don't really know who's coming for you or coming for your stuff. And that might be you, but that shows us, as we are introduced to Zacchaeus, 
he's a very different character. He's somebody that breaks all the expectations of both the culture, but also the people back in the days of Jesus. He's rich, but he's also a social outcast. So that leads us to the second point. How in the world did he get saved? How will you, how will you and I get saved? Well, it's an interesting, interesting set of circumstances. Um, you know, the first thing you read in verse 3, at least in the first part, is that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. You know, everybody wanted to know Jesus. So he was a seeker, and he wasn't expecting to have a conversation. He was just expecting to see Jesus. His, his popularity grew. People wanted to know about him. He was performing miracles. He was making the religious elite angry. So we know that at least that Zacchaeus was curious and that he was somebody that was eager he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, Tim Keller has wrote this Bible study in a, in a curriculum that he called Generosity. And one point that he makes in this one section of Luke chapter 19 uh, in this booklet, and by the way, if you want to read it, I have a copy for you. He says very insightfully that in his opinion as a pastor, those people who tend to seek, who are in a desperate situation, are actually in a worse possible circumstance than those who are seeking Jesus who are not in a desperate situation. Because what he means by this, he says, if your life is falling apart, it's really maybe not the best time to go looking for Jesus because at that point you're so desperate that you actually become gullible. You'll believe in anything. If your life is falling apart, you know, if you're facing stage four cancer, if your marriage is on the brinks, if your child is a runaway and has left a family, if you're in financial distress, when your life is falling apart, what he's trying to make in this point is to say that that oftentimes may not be the best way to look for Jesus because you're just looking for anything to save your life. It's not as authentic and genuine. A little bit harder to authenticate because you're not looking to see who Jesus is. You're looking to see what Jesus can give you. Can you cure my cancer? Can you get me a new job? Can you bring my child back? Can you make my spouse be a little bit more gracious and thoughtful? So it's a little bit harder when your life is falling apart to seek after Jesus, and that's why it's all the more interesting to see that Zacchaeus, his life isn't falling apart. His life is fantastic. Well, yeah, he doesn't have any friends, but that doesn't seem to bother him, at least in the verses we've read. He's in power, and he has a lot of money. Life is really good for him. So he's eager and curious, but he's not, his life isn't falling apart. So it tells us he might be in a better stage and a frame of mind to really engage who Jesus is. Let me figure this guy out. What is Christianity about? You know, he's a little bit more sober. He's eager and he's curious. Because when your life is falling apart, you're much more concerned about what Jesus can do for you rather than who Jesus is, and it's not really a great relationship. Now, I know I'm dating myself, but he sort of captures the same point as this one movie I saw back, I think in the 90s, Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock. It was a movie called Speed. And it's, a, it's actually a fantastic movie. Check it out if you can. Low budget, but I think Keanu Reeves is before Matrix, before Matrix, before John Wick. And he's basically a cop. Long story short, he, through this miracle, saves this character played by Sandra Bullock. And as they sort of get casted out and thrown out from the bus, she has this one line at the end of the movie that people sort of harped on. And she said this, as they looked into each other's eyes, escaping a near-death experience. She says, relationships that start under intense circumstances never last. By the way, that's not just great dating advice. That's really what Keller is trying to say, too. Relationships that start under intense circumstances never last. Now, I know a lot of the miracles in the Bible talk about intense circumstances. Blind Bartimaeus 
or Jairus who says, my daughter's about to die. So yeah, certainly Jesus can speak into this, but generally it's better when your life is doing well and you're peaceful that you're diligent, faithful, and you're pursuing Jesus. You're learning more about him because it makes it a little bit more assured that you're understanding Jesus for who he truly is. Zacchaeus is not desperate. He's just curious. That's why verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And so what does Zacchaeus do? Well, he goes to the crowds, but verse 3 also says, on account of the crowd, he couldn't see Jesus because he was small in stature. In other words, he was a small guy. He was probably short. Some scholars, I don't know where they get this. He was probably like 4'10". I don't know where they get this, but like we can't see over the crowds. You know, they may not have had milk as much as we have in today that helps you to grow. So he was small in stature and couldn't get over the crowds. But there's something deeper here. Because if you're kind and you're nice, you know, sometimes when I go to Disneyland and I'm watching the fireworks at the last show, and if there's somebody who's shorter than me, like a little kid, no problem, come up to the front. Now, it doesn't affect my view of the fireworks and all the laser lights that kind of flash. So why in the world, when Zacchaeus, who's small in stature, why wouldn't they let him in the crowd to see Jesus? Because it wasn't just that he was short. Remember, he was ostracized. They didn't like him. They intentionally kept him out. But that didn't stop Zacchaeus. He was tenacious. He was determined. So he says, I can't get into the crowd. Where is Jesus walking? He goes ahead, projects the trajectory of Jesus' walk, goes up the sycamore tree so he could get a glimpse. And this is where Jesus shows himself to be a prophet. In verse 5, he says this. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Hurry and come down from a stay at your house today. We don't know how Jesus knew this man's name. Maybe people were saying, Zacchaeus, get out of the way. Zacchaeus, stay back. Oh, there's Zacchaeus. That's the traitor. That's the tax collector getting rich off his own people. Who knows how Jesus knew his name? He was a son of God. I think he probably just knew who Zacchaeus was. This is what's interesting. One commentator, a New Testament commentator, Daryl Bach, has mentioned this point. Jesus' invitation, I must stay at your house. He's inviting himself over shows something radically different than contemporary hospitality. When Jesus says, I'm going to stay at your house, he's accepting Jesus first. He's accepting Zacchaeus first. He's saying, I want a relationship with you. Because back then, hospitality was so much deeper than just entertainment. Hospitality, having dinner at the table with a stranger, wasn't just about feeding someone. It was about fellowshipping with someone. So when Jesus says, I want to stay at your house, he's telling the world, Every one of you says he's a sinner and you reject him. I'm telling publicly, I'm going to stay at your house because I want a relationship. I accept him first. That's something radically different. It's sort of lost on modern people like you and me. But back then, it would have been a travesty. People would have been like, you would have heard from the crowds a sense when Jesus says, I'll stay at your house. There would have been a sense in the crowds being like, oh my gosh. Or you hear like a murmur, because how can Jesus do this? No one stays at the house of Zacchaeus. But that's what... Jesus does. So how did he get saved? Well, commentators will all note this as well. It shows us that Christianity is entirely different from every other religion out there in the world. Even you and I, even how we operate on a human level. Well, what do I do? Well, somebody comes over, we got to clean the house. We clean the house first, and then somebody comes over. But here, the point is to say that Jesus accepts Zacchaeus first, and then he goes over to the house. You don't have to clean the house. You don't have to be morally right. You don't have to be achievement-oriented. You don't have to attain a certain spiritual level. Jesus doesn't say, once you fulfill all the Ten Commandments, Zacchaeus, 
give me a ring, then I'm going to come over to your house. He doesn't say to Zacchaeus, okay, change up and fix all the impropriety, fix all the injustice that you have accumulated all your wealth with, change all that, have retribution, give payback, and once you clean up your life, then I'm going to come over. Jesus doesn't do this. You know why? Because Christianity is absolutely different from every other religion. Every other religion says this, clean up your house and I'm going to come over. Christianity says Jesus comes to your house dirty and he'll clean it up for you. That's the difference. He'll accept you first. He says, I'm coming to your house first. I want to be your guest first. I want a relationship first. And then we could discover how you grow out of this. See, that point, I think, is made emphatic in the way that Luke writes this account to say that Jesus comes first, then cleans up your house because he compares two rich people in chapter 18 and chapter 19. Two rich people. Everyone says this. You see this insight. Luke intentionally writes about two accounts, the rich young ruler in 18, and then Zacchaeus, another rich ruler, in 19. And so you compare this. Well, how do you compare the rich young ruler in 18 to Zacchaeus in 19? Well, there's a lot of similarities. They're both rich. They're both rulers. The rich young ruler in 18 is religiously different because he says, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. And Jesus, he challenges him and says, can you keep the first one to have no other gods before me? Go sell all your possessions and then come follow me. And we all know the story of the rich young ruler. He walks away. He couldn't do it. The second one wasn't someone who was religious and pious and saying, I kept all the commandments. He knew, he actually, he was irreligious. He knew that he was corrupt. He knew he was working the system to get richer. So whereas the ruler in 18 says he was very religious and he's very pious, Zacchaeus in chapter 19 says, I'm a sinner. The crowd say, he's a sinner. He's a scoundrel. He's corrupt and he's a traitor. In the first, in chapter 18, Jesus ends the discussion with the rich young ruler, and he says, who can be saved? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But then we'll look at the contrast where we read later with Zacchaeus, what is he says? Salvation has come to this house. The contrast heightens the point to say the rich young ruler in 18 thought I could perform, fill the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus will clean my house. Zacchaeus shows that's not how Christianity works. You're not good enough. You can't clean your own house. You can't clean up your own life. It's saying, actually, Jesus comes first in the messiness of your house, the messiness of your heart. And when he does that, then he cleans it up. He changes and he transforms you. He wipes you down with the white holiness and the righteousness of who Jesus is for you. That's the point. That's how he got saved. Are you like that as well? Can you let Jesus into your house first? All this messiness in your heart, all this hurt, all this pain, all the skeletons that no one knows about, thinking, I have to get better, I have to work harder, I need to make myself a little bit more presentable. And once I do, then I could have a real authentic relationship with Jesus. No, that's cleaning up the house, inviting Jesus in. Jesus is knocking on your door. I want to come first. Don't clean up anything. I'm going to enter your house first because Christianity is a religion of grace, not a religion of performance. Let me hammer this point home, and then we'll end at point three. When you compare Jesus' words, there's something very insightful that comes out in the ten verses. In verse 5, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. And then after he becomes saved, in verse 9, it says, Today salvation has come to this house. He's talking about himself in the third person. I want to come to your house. After they talk, 
Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because Jesus is salvation. He's saying, I came to your house. Everything else says, you want salvation? You got to work hard and be a better husband, be a better wife, a better child, a better worker, a better tither, more merciful. Religion will always say, you got to keep doing more and more and more. And then maybe salvation will come at the end. Jesus doesn't say that. He, Jesus says the only religion, Christianity, says salvation has come. I have come in a person. Salvation doesn't come through moral performance or doesn't come from moral conformity. Salvation comes in a person because it says you can't clean up the house. You can't do this. You can't perform well. I have to come into your house because I am salvation in my death and resurrection. Jesus identifies him, himself as the one who could clean you up. And if you could see Jesus, if you can embrace him, if you can recognize that you can't fix yourself or make yourself better, only Jesus can, then the penny may drop and the spirit may hit and you may get a glimpse on Christianity to say, okay, I can't do this. I'm going to throw myself before the feet of Jesus. I'm going to give myself to him. He's going to come into my life, into my heart, and he's going to clean me up. He's going to wipe away my sin and his death. He's going to give me a new life in his resurrection. You see, he's going to be the one that enters into your life in a way that no one else can. We get a glimpse of this already when you look at this encounter in point number two. Jesus publicly will take the derision and the ridicule from the crowd for entering to Zacchaeus' house. It's like, how can Jesus do this? Then they get angrier. They will get more, they'll get more critical. They're going to kill him. But Jesus will take that pain in order to save a sinner. That's a glimpse of the gospel, isn't it? From the crowds, he'll be mocked. He won't just get derided as somebody who's a perpetrator. Jesus will go the distance. He won't just go into Zacchaeus' house and take criticism. He's going to go to the cross and get killed by crowds like you and me. That's a glimpse of the gospel. That's how you let Jesus in. See, the roles have been reversed, isn't it? Don't you see that? Jesus, he gets criticized for going into Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, who actually was viewed a sinner, comes out as a son. The reversal of their statuses is exactly what we see in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is clean, actually was rejected by the crowds and goes into Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, who was rejected by the crowds, comes out and is accepted by Jesus because salvation has come to this house. Because now he went from a sinner to a son of Abraham. How do you know? Thirdly, how do you know? This is, how, this is how you know. How do you know that you, the penny has dropped? That's an old term. How do you know that really the spirit has hit? Something clicked. Where there is a, a slow turn to say, okay, I'm starting to get it. How do you know that Jesus, how do you know that Jesus is in your house? How do you know you let him in the front door? Well, Dale Bruner said this, at least in this, not the only way, but a big way, not the only way, but a huge way, is by how you use your money, how you use your wealth, how you use your power. How you view all that and apply it into the workplace, in the home, with your friends, it's not the only way, but it's a huge way. The way that you use money and think about your social status will radically tell someone how you understand and view Jesus if he came into your house. Now, let's look at this. There's not an explicit mention of a confession. It's not say Jesus, he doesn't go up to Zacchaeus and say, do you believe in me? Zacchaeus says, I confess I'm a sinner, I accept Jesus as my Savior, and then all of a sudden he changes. I think it happened, but Luke wants to record just the action, the evidence of it. He has a status change. Remember, he went from a sinner to a son, and he begins to live that new identity out. The crowds call him a sinner, but Jesus says, now you're a son of Abraham. Well, how do we know he's a son of Abraham? Because of what verse 8 did. 
Verse 8 says this, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now let me just, let me, let me cut to the chase here. If you're thinking, is Pastor Will saying I have to give 50% and then also, you know, if I kind of cheated on taxes to pay the IRS fourfold back, maybe. <laughs> but then you're, you're missing the point. See, once you read verse 8 and you apply Zacchaeus to yourself, if you read verse 8 and apply it as an accountant, then you really haven't gotten the point. Because it's not about giving half to the poor, 25% to the poor. You know, these are the people, I think, now, please don't take this as a judgment, but these are the people who come to me and say, do I give tithing in 10% before or after taxes are taken out? Do I give 10% before my 401k or after my 401k? You know, they're finding the tax loop. Actually, that's great. You find the financial tax loop. I think that's good to be savvy. But if you read verse 8 and the first question you have is one of an accountant, you may be not really getting the point here. Because Zacchaeus, he just, he did this on his own account. Jesus didn't say give half to the poor. Those accounting principles weren't given by Jesus. Zacchaeus did it joyfully. Do you see that? We, need, we don't have time to get into this, but Zacchaeus, he's eager. Remember, he's not, his life isn't falling apart. He's calm, he's temperate, life is good, and he seeks Jesus, but he's joyful. Everything about his life is joyful. He wants to do this. He has a radical transformation in his heart. He has changed from the inside out, and he, by his own account, says, I want to give half my goods to the poor and anyone I defrauded, which tells you he did defraud people. He knew what he was doing. Some people say, maybe he didn't. No, no, he knew. He's too savvy. He knew what he was doing. He defrauded people. He says, I'm going to pay them fourfold back. In other words, how do we know that he was, went from a sinner to a son of Abraham? He was radically generous. Generosity. There's a quick study by the University of Notre Dame about the history of generosity in Western culture and philosophy. But before you fall asleep, let me just give you the point. It says generosity, at the conclusion of this article, Generosity is endangered in today's world, a world dominated by contract or economic exchange, which is indeed strictly conditional. So if I summarize it, it's tracing the idea, etymology of generosity as well as the impact in cultures. People think generosity tends to be more Eastern cultures, but it's very much bound up in Western culture through Thomas Aquinas and other philosophers. And he's saying that at least there's anecdotal evidence that whenever a culture is characterized by generosity, society flourishes. But it's changed in this day and age where we've been hyper-individualistic, hyper-consumeristic, hyper to ourselves. Generosity is endangered in today's world, a world dominated by contract, economic exchange, which is indeed strictly conditional. Now, this historian that I've referenced before, Ken Latteret, once had said, one of the radical ways that Christianity spread in the days of the early church, there are a lot of ways. There's a lot of reasons that Christianity spread. It exploded like wildfire in the days of the New Testament. There are three things at least they say. One was Christianity's sexual ethic, a monogamous, really heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. That was the first thing that was really different from the promiscuity of New Testament cities, the second was that Christians kept going to church every Sunday. You ever think about that? Because where is one of the biggest 
profitable days in the week. Even back then, it was Sunday. So when Christians went to church on Sundays, they wouldn't open up their businesses. It was the same situation. Supply chains would be affected. So the non-Christians would complain to the Roman government, hey, those Christians, they're not opening their business. I can't get materials to do my business. So they would criticize and complain about Christians. But that was why it was radically big, because Christians kept going to church, showing where their allegiance really was. Do you know what the third one was? They were radically generous. There's even like Tatian, these church historians that will talk about these officials and church fathers saying, from a non-Christian perspective, these Christians who follow the way are so different because they help the poor who are not even their family. They'll give their money away to people who are in need in their communities. And that was something so different, and they saw this radical generosity that allowed Christianity to explode. What about you and me? What about us? Have we let Jesus into the house that led us to be radically generous? In our lives. In our lives. Tertullian once said this, And so it is that when a man walks along a road, the lighter he travels, the happier he is. Equally, on this journey of life, a man is more blessed if he does not pant beneath the burden of riches. No, he just put it more eloquently. It's better to give away than to keep everything for yourself. It may lead to a happier life. Friends, I know this is hard-hitting. It's just a question. Has Jesus come into your house? Have you opened up his heart? Is he into your house? In our discipleship curriculum, gospel formations, it says we have managed to do something that the early Christians would not have thought possible. We have made Christianity safe, middle class, and comfortable. And friends, I'm, there, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm not standing above you, even though I'm physically above you on the stage. I'm right there with you. Materialism, money, so we're in this together. Have we made Christianity safe, middle class, and comfortable? Now, for some of us, it's easy to give 10% away because it doesn't make a difference. For others of us, you give 2% away, and it changes your life. And I think what the gospel is telling us is that we be radically generous because it changes our life. It makes us different and joyful to do this. So are you, do you read verse 8 as an accountant, or do you read verse 8 as a son of Abraham? Are you using your resources as a manager on behalf of God who owns everything? And because God owns everything that you accumulated, you're a manager who uses this for the sake of the kingdom, or are you somebody who thinks you've earned this and it's all for you to distribute according to your own principles? Now, don't get me wrong. You have a lot of freedom in order to be able to do this, but there is something to be said that radical acceptance of Jesus will lead to radical generosity. Let me end on this. Kind of a weird way to end, but the Bible and Christianity, they love rich people. <laughs> you can't be shy about money. You know, it seems like, oh, I'll give your money away. But the Bible loves rich people. Proverbs affirms money is really good. But you know what the Bible condemns? It doesn't condemn rich people. It condemns people who trust in their riches. The Bible doesn't condemn those who are economically wealthy. It warns against the dangers of being economically wealthy. That's very different. So even in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Take care and be on guard against all your covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And there's a warning there that Jesus gives because money and wealth are so powerful that it can pretend and fake to be the entirety of your life. You think you have security. You think you have someone that you think money and wealth will give you a sense 
of power, a sense of control, and it does on some level. Richer people have more control in some ways, but you're not in control of your life. You're not in control of heaven and hell. It can't give you security because it may help you enjoy a better life, but it can't bring you to heaven. It can't ensure that you're not going to pass away. Money is powerful. Wealth is powerful. Power is powerful. It captures our emotions. We're controlled by this. Identity can be based on money. That's why Jesus says, just remember, your abundance cannot consist, cannot be defined by, cannot be equated with possessions and money because Jesus knows a lot of people fall into that sin like you and me. There's lovers of money, we daydream about it. There's trusters of money to have control and security in our lives. There's servants of money because you just want a little bit more. But if and only if and only when you let Jesus into your life, as it says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, do you not know that you are rich in Jesus? Ephesians chapter 1, do you not know you have every heavenly blessing? So that then and only then, if you let Jesus into your life first because salvation has come to your house, changes you from the inside out, then and only then you'll be radically generous with your possessions, with yourself, with your money. Because at the end of the day, when we realize that God just didn't send his son Jesus to die for you, but God gave his son out of generosity. It was costly. How generous was God to give his son? It was a costly gift. It was a costly sacrifice by God the Father. It was a costly sacrifice by Jesus himself. If you get how radical, universally different, and generous that cost was, then slowly, day by day, you will also become radically generous in the way that you think about money and your time and your gifts and even yourself. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions because one's life consists in the abundance of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ, who today says, salvation has come to this house. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the riches that we see, and see first and foremost, God, that you're so generous to us, even having life and health and abundance and houses apartments and condos or whatever it may be. All things are so good. We thank you for that, that we can embrace and use it for your kingdom and glory. But every one of us, God, every one of us, teach us what it means to be radically generous, joyfully generous, selflessly generous, because it's not just a model we follow, but it's a new identity we've been given to live this out for the sake of your kingdom and glory. Thank you so much, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.